Welcome to the PD tour of the Francis Marion Trail podcast, following the driving trails developed by the Francis Marion Trail Commission in South Carolina. You'll hear stories of the Swamp Fox, the Revolutionary War hero, General Francis Marion. The podcast is a creation of the Florence Convention and Visitors Bureau with adaptations of stories collected by the Francis Marion Trail Commission. Some are historical accounts and others may be folklore. We'll let you listen and decide. This episode can be enjoyed while driving to Dunham's Bluff and Snows Island, just off of Bluff Road, near Pamplico, South Carolina. Five Hundred Surrender at Bowling Green After a skirmish with Marion's men near Bowling Green, Loyalist leader Mikajagani sued for armistice and met with Marion on June 8, 1782 to get to negotiate surrender. Following a testy negotiation and another small skirmish, the two sides came to terms and a treaty was signed. The two commanders agreed that the Loyalists should restore all plundered property where possible, become peaceful citizens, and abide by the laws of the state of South Carolina. They should also sign a declaration of allegiance to South Carolina and to the United States. To obtain full pardon, the Tories were also required to enlist in American military and serve six months, which Ganey and many others did. A few days later, 500 Tories surrendered at the Lone Oak, a huge tree that served as a rendezvous point near the present-day U.S. Highway 501 marker for Bowling Green, a few miles from the city of Marion. Partisan warfare in the area ended with the signing of this treaty. Although the site of the fight and the surrender has been thought by some authorities to be in a housing development near the highway and marker, inspection of the site in 2010 and in years immediately preceding 2010 has led to the belief by some that the fight and surrender did not occur in the developed area at all, but either in a large field adjacent to a nearby cemetery or in a wooded area near the housing development. Future archaeology might settle this question. The Battle of Blue Savannah, Two Fights and a Little Theater Many Whigs, or Patriots, of whom Francis Marion was one, lived near Black River or in the vicinity of the King's Tree. However, other families loyal to the King of England, called Tories, or Loyalists, were concentrated east of the Great Petey River near Drowning Creek, now the Lumbar River, and Catfish Creek in now Marion County. The Loyalist leader was Major Mackay a handsome, intelligent man with military bearing, but hot-tempered and violent when agitated. Captain Jesse Bearfield, second-in-command of the Loyalist Regiment, was a prominent family man who owned much property. He had originally been a patriot, but changed sides due to a perceived social slight from another officer. When the Loyalists learned that Francis Marion and his Patriot Militia were camped at Ports Ferry near present-day Johnsonville, they moved with 250 men to destroy Marion's force of 53 Patriot Militiamen. The date was September 4, 1780, and Marion had only recently taken command of the Williamsburg Militia, but his scouts and spies warned him of danger. He knew that he could run but would likely lose the confidence of the Patriots. He could wait... He could wait to be attacked and fight the five times larger Loyalist force in the swamps and forests. Or he could do the unexpected and attack. Marion chose to attack. 
He had each of his men mount white cockades in their hats so they might distinguish each other from the loyalists. Then Marion sent Major John James on his great horse Thunder with 15 volunteers as an advance force with the remaining 38 horsemen following at a distance. Meanwhile, Ganey had set out leading an advance guard of 45 horsemen followed by Bearfield leading the Loyalist infantry. For two hours, Marion's men rode leisurely through the warm morning, the road winding across sand ridges covered in scrub oaks and partridge peas, and through swamps eventually nearing the Little Petey River. Abruptly, one of the scouts reversed direction and raced back to sound the alarm that a group of Tory horsemen blocked the road ahead. Major James, without waiting for orders, immediately spurred Thunder forward, shouting for his 15 men of the advance party to follow. James recognized Major Ganey in the vanguard of the Loyalists and charged straight for him, his sword cutting circles in the air. The suddenness of the attack by James and Marion's advance party had taken Ganey by surprise, and in a panic, he wheeled and fled, and his equally surprised Loyalist troops scattered like startled roaches in every direction. James was on Ganey's heels for a half mile, while both horses running full out. At the point, Ganey spotted several loyalists behind a thicket and broke off to join them. At once, James realized he had outrun his men, was outnumbered, and was in grave danger. Instantly, he realized the danger and sensed that the situation called for some theatrics and convincing bluff. He spurred Thunder straight into Ganey's group, shouting, Come on, boys! Come on! Here they are! Here they are! The act worked. The soldier actor had convinced the group of loyalists that they were about to be slaughtered and they had fled in panic, not stopping until they were safe in the little PD swamp. This little comic opera could have ended much differently for Major James. The loyalists were so thoroughly terrified and preoccupied with escape that they failed to warn Bearfield's infantry of the approach of James and Marion. From loyalist prisoners taken, Marion learned that the loyalist foot soldiers were only three miles distant down the road. Marion and his horsemen immediately raced down the road toward the Loyalist foot soldiers under the command of Jesse Bearfield, and ten minutes later met them in full march. Bearfield quickly formed his men in a line across the road. Marion recognized that attacking 200 men with drawn muskets in a frontal assault would be suicidal and signaled a retreat. He halted the retreat at the Blue Savannah, an open, low, wet sandy area with very dense growth, now recognized as the geological phenomenon known as a Carolina Bay. Marion left the road and circled back, concealing his men behind a screen of pine saplings and waited. Captain Bearfield was very courageous, but not particularly cautious. The Loyalist infantry was spoiling for a fight and marched straight into the ambush set by Marion. Marion's horsemen charged the somewhat undisciplined line of infantry as they passed the screen of pine saplings. The horsemen's pistols smoking, sabers waving, and shouts filling the air. Bearfield's loyalists fired one volley of bucket shot, which wounded three of Marion's men and killed two horses. With Marion's horsemen on top of them, the loyalist infantry did not have time to reload. Bearfield's men panicked, broke ranks, darted into surrounding woods, and did not stop running until they were safely in the swamps of the Little P.D., Marion's men prowled the edge of the swamp, screaming, cursing, and firing at the trembling fugitives. Marion eventually called them off, and after caring for the wounded and prisoners, he turned slowly back to Port's Ferry. The Loyalists had been dispersed without serious bloodshed, and the wounds of his civil and the wounds of this civil warfare would heal more easily since there were no dead to remember. At a cost of four men wounded and two killed, the power of the Tories east of the Great PD had been broken. 
court-martial of a rattlesnake. During times of war, the court-martial of soldiers is a common occurrence, but animals, especially rattlesnakes, are generally exempt. A little strong drink, however, can sometimes have an amazing effect on normal military procedure. One patriotic rattlesnake was subjected to the indignity of just such a proceeding, but justice eventually prevailed and our patriotic friend and ally was exonerated. Although this tale has long been classified as legend, and a few small facts might be disputed, it certainly has the ring of truth. This dramatic and doubtless emotional proceeding took place after Marion's great military victory over the evil and despicable Tories at the Battle of Blue Savannah. The good general and his merry men were relaxing and celebrating their triumph. They ate roasted pig and turkey, and each of the men, except Marion, drank a half a pint of brandy to assist with their relaxation and to increase their merriment. More than a few were exceptionally relaxed and remarkably merry. As the evening wore on, this joyful band of brothers set out to discover their athletic ability. However, those on foot generally found walking consistently in one direction to be something of an adventure. After a time, our well-oiled heroes came across a severely deceased enemy soldier whose condition was immediately a puzzlement to the militia troops, unsteadily observing his corpse. Luck was theirs, and Providence pointed its bony finger at the culprit as a large and somewhat agitated rattlesnake slithered away from the cool and stiffening corpse of the wicked enemy. Our ever-quick-witted stalwarts observing the serpents haste to depart the scene deduced that this scaly citizen of South Carolina had in fact murdered the British sympathizer lying on the ground at their feet. Our heroes were set to dispose of the noble snake when a somewhat slurred dissenting voice advocated for the reptile and suggested that justice would be served if this citizen of South Carolina were given a fair military trial. The righteous wisdom of this course was not lost on the slightly inebriated backwoods brethren. The unfortunate and protesting rattlesnake was secured with a horsehair noose and unceremoniously transported back to camp. One self-proclaimed barrister functioned as advocate for the defendant rattlesnake. The jury was comprised of all those who could sit without tipping over, and a mule was appointed judge because he could stand without swaying excessively. The above-mentioned barrister presented a compelling case, arguing, If this creature is a murderer, then so are we all. This snake has killed one enemy soldier. We have killed many. This is not murder, gentlemen. This is war. The jury, evidently swayed by the passion and emotional defense, cleared the noble reptile of any wrongdoing and declared him a patriot, whereupon he was released to the wild with much cheering and the good wishes of all assembled. Snow's Island, Den of the Fox The drama of history is painted on a canvas of such magnitude that it takes the passing of time to provide a perspective that leads to appreciation of its significance. The fierce passions of individuals fighting for a cause, their sacrifices, their pain and suffering are often dimmed over the years, but their spirit remains. Snow's Island is an example of such a place, a historical and cultural landscape preserved amidst an important ecological resource. Snow's Island represents the focal point for any important part of not only the PD's history, but also that of South Carolina and the nation. 
One man, General Francis Marion, had a fierce determination to defend his country, combined with an intimate understanding of the landscape and its benefits. He and his men capitalized on his knowledge to turn the landscape itself into an enduring weapon that supported their efforts. From their base on Snows Island, they ambushed the British and rescued American soldiers. Until the end of the conflict, Francis Marion remained the elusive Swamp Fox. Even today, Snows Island is an imposing reality. It is a huge area of high swamp bordered on the west by Clark's Creek, on the north by the Lynch's River, and on the east by the Great Petey River, and on the south by Muddy Creek and Snow Lake. The reality is that what most people today consider Snows Island extends much further to the west across other waterways and approaches Johnsonville. Most of the island is forested and there are several lakes on the island, including Scott Lake and Johnson Lake, with Snow Lake forming part of the southern border. In wet weather, several streams cross the landmass and two creeks carry the water from the Lynch's River down to Muddy Creek, Snow Lake, which in turn conveys the water to the Great PD. The Lynch's River has been blocked by debris for many years when it gets to within a mile or two of the Great PD, and the Great PD frequently backflows into the channel of the Lynch's. Much of the area is forested, and there are even some huge old-growth cypress trees in the swamps along with lynches and the other waterways. It is believed that in Marion's day, the land was largely covered with trees and that a horseman could travel at speed along the forest floor because the tree canopy allowed for little sunlight, and therefore vegetation low to the ground was sparse. There were, of course, bogs, swamps, and marshes surrounding the island, but there was much relatively higher ground and quite a bit of the island itself was generally fairly dry. The famous camp on the island was attacked and destroyed by British Colonel Doyle while it was defended by a very small number of militia and a few wounded and sick who were recuperating at the camp. The Swamp Fox was busy fighting the British and Colonel Watson at Sandpit Bridge outside of Georgetown. A trader named Maskelly led the British force to the camp. Because of the natural barriers of water and swamps surrounding the island, prevailing wisdom is that Marion, had he been in camp with even a moderate-sized force, could easily have stopped Doyle from crossing Clark's Creek and might well have fought him from defensive positions even further west. Snow's Island not only provides very difficult terrains for an invader to cross, it also provides for escape, particularly if an enemy is approaching from the west. A large campsite at Dunham's Bluff, just across the Great Petey River from Snow's Island, could have provided a corridor for escape. This large campsite and redoubt on the east side of the Great Petey River were discovered and archaeologically investigated by the Francis Marion Trail Commission in 2007. Although the Snow's Island campsite itself has never been identified, even after three archaeological investigations, a number of small military sites have been located. There is some indication that the camp may not have been in the area on which the previous archaeological efforts have focused, but further west and within a mile or two of the Great Petey River, or possibly north of the Lynches. Anecdotes from the 1970s and from hunters' experiences in the 1950s and 60s could point to the actual site of the camp, but the potential area to explore is huge. The camp on Snow's Island served not just as a military base, but as a symbol of the toughness, resourcefulness, survival skills, and determination of the men who dared to challenge the greatest military power in the world at that time. It represented a type of warfare for which the British were ill-prepared and to which they had great difficulty adapting. There's a legend that a British officer was escorted to the camp to effect a prison exchange 
and was invited to dinner by Marion himself. The fare was roasted sweet potatoes and creek water. After returning to the British camp, this officer supposedly resigned his commission in the British Army with the explanation that he now believed that the British could not defeat the men who could withstand such hardships as he had witnessed and still fight with skill and ferocity. Whether truth or legend, this story predicted the outcome, and the camp on Snow's Island was its symbol. History's whisper is always there, calling to those who are prepared to hear it. Whether it is the pounding of the hoofbeats on the plains or the silent swish of leaves in a forest as men move stealthily through the trees on a mission, a new generation deserves to appreciate the cultural landscape that surrounds it. It needs the lessons of the past to inform the present. They need the strength that comes from knowing that another generation once overcame turbulent times and overwhelming odds. The Christmas Canon. Sometimes a wonderful little historical legend, one that has been repeated for over a century, becomes more than fiction. Such is the case with the Christmas Canon. This tale, although fanciful and endearing, may perhaps be yet another stepping stone on the path toward discovering more about General Francis Marion and his pivotal role in America's quest for independence. Rather unusually, the story begins in the middle. Sometime in the mid-1800s, while a family was cultivating their land, they discovered some old musket barrels and balls. Realizing they were Revolutionary War relics, they took the items home and placed them among their keepsakes. One of the musket barrels was in such fine condition that they decided to put it to use. They mounted it on a homemade wooden carriage with block wheels sawed from a small log. This cannon was then loaded several inches deep with gunpowder and the powder rammed down the barrel with dry moss. This would be fired off at daybreak every Christmas morning to rouse the whole plantation with thundering Merry Christmas. Half a dozen boys would gleefully get the old cannon out, as they called it, and ready to shoot. When it was all set with plenty of powder at the touch hole, one of the boys, as a special privilege and honor, would take a ten-foot pole with a notch in the end into which a red-hot piece of charcoal had been placed and would stand as far away from the cannon as the pole and outstretched arm would allow. The others would scamper away to a safe distance for fear that the old army piece might burst. And it is a wonder that it did not burst, for the explosion sounded in the still of daybreak as that of a real cannon, and the glorious echoes came rolling back from the woods of Old Saki, a mile away the richest music that a boy could hear. That crude but dear old cannon, which had faithfully ushered in every Christmas day for many years, was in the house of the Dozier Plantation, when Melville Dozier left in 1868 to move with his family to California. Recollections of that story have recently been found that add more detail to the old tale and that more precisely than ever pinpoint the area where Francis Marion and his men might have encamped. The family land upon which the relics were found included an island of several thousand acres known as Snow's Island. That detail adds a new beginning to the story, which might now start once upon a time on Snow's Island, a group of boys found some relics from General Francis Marion's camp. Added to the new beginning are reminiscences that help the story end with a proverbial bang. Little Scout The heroes of war come in many forms, soldiers and citizens, men and women, old and young. 
One such hero of the revolution was 14-year-old Benjamin Rogers. His story, while never written in family records, has passed down through the generations as a tale of courage and patriotism equal to those of men twice his age. Young Benjamin was the last of Mrs. Rogers' sons still living at home. She had seen her older boys off to join the Patriot forces and was proud of Benjamin and his strength of character as provider and protector of the Rogers homestead. The strength of both mother and son was tested one day when a group of British soldiers rode up to their home and demanded food. Knowing the reputation for brutality that these men held, Mrs. Rogers feared for her son's safety before her own. In answer to their demand for food, she replied, I must first obtain some meal, and if you'll wait, I'll send this boy to get some. The men complied, and she quickly ushered the young Benjamin through the yard, whispering instructions as they went. Mrs. Rogers knew of Francis Marion and trusted as well that her son had heard the tales of his courageous exploits against the Tories. In hushed tones, she said to him, You know the Swamp Fox. His camp is right now just over in Marion County. Go quickly to him and ask him to keep you safely. Benjamin did just what his mother said, finding not only the camp and the Swamp Fox, but also a place in history as well as a scout and messenger in General Marion's militia. For generations to come, the stories of Benjamin would be told at Rogers' family's get-togethers. Proud words were then, as they are now, spoken of the bravery of a mother who protected her son and remained to face mounted British soldiers, and of the boy who became a trusted soldier for Francis Marion. Torture and Murder in the PD Sandy Bluff was home to the notorious Captain Maurice Murphy. His reputation for violence had spread beyond the little PD, and it was said that his greatest pleasure came from the sufferings of others. Even the infamously brutal Major Weems recognized his penchant for cruelty. In a letter to Lord Cornwallis, Weems related that Marion, Giles, and other leading men were, quote, burning down houses and distressing the well-affected in a most severe manner. While Weems was wrong about Marion and Giles, some of the other leading men were, in fact, perpetuating great acts of duress around the region. Murphy was not content to fight the Tories, but took upon himself a duty to rout the Loyalists in whatever way he deemed necessary. He was known to set fire to their homes and then chase down the fleeing survivors. The Battle of Blue Savannah had left Ganey with a defeat, but provided Maurice Murphy with several Tories to chase— off he and several of his guerrillas went to track down the Blackman boys, sons of noted Tory, who lived on Catfish Creek. The patriarch of the Blackman family was old but steadfast. When Murphy demanded to know the whereabouts of his sons, the elder Blackman remained silent. Being bound to a gate by the band of marauders only heightened his resolve. The exchange, often repeated, bears testament to the strength of the two leading men in this encounter. "'Who are you for?' Murphy asked." King George, replied Blackman. At Murphy's nod, his men gave Blackman fifty lashes with a bullwhip. Now who are you for? demanded Murphy. King George, snarled Blackman. The guerrillas laid another fifty lashes on the old man's lacerated back. Now, by God, who are you for? shouted Murphy. King George, roared Blackman. They gave him another fifty stripes. Who are you for? King George! With heightened emotions and still possessed of rage, Murphy relented to the courage of the old man and released him. The decision to stop at the home of his uncle Gideon Gibson after such an encounter proved to be a regrettable one. 
Gibson soundly contended that his nephew was wronged to have exhibited such cruelty on the elderly black man and upbraided him for it. As the argument escalated, Murphy sprang from his seat and marched from the house, only to be followed by his unrelenting uncle. Captain Murphy stopped the exchange of words long enough to draw his pistol and shoot his relative dead on his own doorstep. Although three of Gideon Gibson's sons were present at the murder of their father, Murphy's reputation prevented them from interfering in the action and from any sort of retaliation of their own. General Francis Marion, as might be expected, despised Captain Maurice Murphy. In direct opposition to his own practices and motives, Marion found the shooting of a defenseless man or the burning of a home just emptied of women and children abominable. Why Marion's Story is Worth the Telling The things that make General Francis Marion's story exceptional are not the military tactics employed, the victories, or the pivotal role played by a tiny group of fighters and patriots who affected the course of world history. The general's character and the way he interacted with the people who played a part of his life are the things that elevate this far above a military adventure. Marion, and a number of others, can serve as role models for children and young people today, every bit as relevant now and in the future as 230 years ago. Marion's saga is a great morality play. He is the quintessential underdog, sickly as a small child, small in stature, partially crippled, and modestly educated. He possessed dark, piercing eyes and sharp features considered unhandsome by the standards of his day. The Swamp Fox was a good man in an extremely brutal situation fighting determined, far more powerful, and frequently evil adversaries. Marion prevails not always by brute strength, but by intellect, high moral principles, a sense of compassion for his troops and his enemy, physical toughness, incredible bravery, sheer cuss determination, and a genius for things military. He is not without flaws, but he is a magnificent role model. Marion fought with courage and distinction in the third of the Indian Wars against the Cherokee about 1760, personally leading an almost suicidal charge that cracked the Cherokee defenses at Echo Pass. Early in the Revolutionary War, at the Battle of Sullivan's Island, Marion figured prominently in the legendary defeat of British warships. Later in the Revolution, just before the devastating American loss at the Battle of Camden, Marion was asked to take over command at the Williamsburg Militia in the PD area of South Carolina. This militia was destined to become one of the most effective fighting units in American military history. George Washington's war in the North was stalemated. The British elected to change strategy and win the war in the Southern Theater, an area that contained the economic resources of greatest importance to the British. A compelling argument can be made that the war for American independence was lost by the British in the South. However, in the South, the Americans themselves lost three armies in succession, one at Savannah, a second at Charleston, and a third at Camden. For a brief period after the loss of General Gates' army at Camden, a small cadre of fighters under Francis Marion was virtually all that kept the South from falling to the British. Marion's militia often rode huge distances, attacked without warning, frequently at night, and melded into the swamp or forest. British lines of communication were disrupted. The British and Tories could not consolidate their hold on South Carolina. Had the British been able to consolidate their hold, international law of the day would have allowed them to keep the territory they held at the time of the armistice. British victory in the South, specifically South Carolina, would have likely cost America the war. Our history and that of the world would have been vastly altered. 
A description of Marion and his men recorded when Marion and a few militiamen visited General Gates' camp at Camden. Quote, Colonel Marion, a gentleman of South Carolina, had been with the army but a few days. Attended by a very few followers, their number did not exceed 20 men and boys, some white, some black, and all mounted, but most of them miserably equipped. Their appearance was in fact so burlesque that it was with much difficulty that the diversion, the regular soldiery, was restrained by the officers, and the general himself was glad of an opportunity of detaching Colonel Marion, at his own instance, towards the interior of South Carolina, with orders to watch the motions of the enemy and furnish intelligence. A few days later, Marion left the camp. General Gates' army was destroyed by the British. Meanwhile, Marion had taken command of the Williamsburg militia. The Williamsburg militia was a tiny band of poorly equipped, wretchedly clothed, underfed, and unpaid citizen soldiers. There was rarely enough ammunition. They did have fast horses, knowledge of the swamps, forests, and rivers, excellent riflemen, and the ability to live off the land, and first-rate scouts and spies. Now they also had a little leader with great courage and a penchant for guerrilla warfare. The militia was composed of small farmers, trappers and hunters, aristocrats, tradesmen, slaves, freemen, clergy, Catawba Indians, whites, blacks, triracials and biracials, French Huguenots, scouts, Irish, English, Germans, and others, often assisted by female spies and the wives, mothers, and sweethearts of the fighters. Marion was careful not to be reckless with the lives of his men. He rarely engaged with the enemy unless he believed his militia could win with relatively light casualties. Quote, he waged war not for the glory for himself, but in the manner that was the safest for us. According to one militiaman, Marion's men loved him for this. The little general seemed to have an innate understanding of the importance of winning the hearts and minds of the populace. Some around him wanted him to take part in plundering of the farms of his enemies, but he refused. He opposed those who would abuse the Tories, opposed confiscation of Tory property knowing that these actions would make reconciliation after the war much more difficult. When the war was over, Marion said, quote, God has given us the victory. Let us show our gratitude to heaven, which we shall not do by cruelty to men. This may have been Marion's greatest moment, although it is not always remembered. The Swamp Fox received much criticism for this stand. Many wanted vengeance and retribution. A bloodbath like that in the aftermath of the French Revolution could have occurred, Marion stood his ground, and his influence helped prevent such a tragedy. He believed that the people should establish a just civil government based on law. Others came to see the wisdom of Marion's point of view. The establishment of peace after the war is perhaps Marion's greatest achievement. A partially crippled, modestly educated, middle-aged little man with a hooked nose and fierce eyes leading an impoverished and eclectic band of citizen soldiers played a pivotal role in the defeat of the most powerful military in the world at that time. The Swamp Fox frequently demonstrated compassion for his enemy, both soldiers and civilians. Honesty, honor in his dealings, selflessness, and magnanimity for victory. He understood the importance of winning the loyalty of the people, whereas many of his adversaries seemed not to grasp this concept. Marion was a major influence for the reconciliation rather than retribution after the war, even though his home and material possessions had been largely destroyed by the fighting. The greatest benefit of exploring the history of Francis Marion and his brigade is that it gives us understanding of the great lessons of the past and makes these lessons available to our generation and generations to come. He was God's own man and one of the greatest leaders a young nation could ever hope to have. 
At this time, you should be at or near your destination, Dunham's Bluff. 